the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, big news out of the CDC. And then we're going to discuss, is there a problem with celebrity culture in evangelicalism? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to be with you today. My co-host, Aubrey Sampson, is still on vacation, enjoying some downtime. We look forward to Aubrey being back on Monday. Well, I want to just kind of kick off the show with some news, with some various things from the news. And the big one is this. It says this in a major shift. The CDC will announce or did announce today that fully vaccinated people can stop wearing masks, not only outside, but indoors as well. This feels like a monumental announcement from the CDC. Now, some of you. Uh, you're thinking, man, this this happened in my life a long time ago or this should have happened a long time ago. For others of you, you're thinking, I'm not ready for this at all. But the CDC, for who many of us, uh, these were the people or are the people that we're kind of following that, that you know, what that's what they get paid to do. Them coming out today and saying fully vaccinated people uh, can stop wearing masks indoors and outdoors. It feels like one of the biggest steps that has been taken culturally to move back towards some normalcy. We'll see what it means uh, for Illinois, where our governor has uh, kind of pointed to June 11th. Uh, as the time where we get to phase five. So I don't know if what the CDC has said today speeds anything up uh, or not. We shall find out about that. Uh, but feels like big news as we hopefully continue to get back to some normalcy, uh, especially for those who have been fully vaccinated. That's the differentiation that the CDC is making. And maybe you out there don't think they should be making that differentiation, but that is the differentiation the CDC is making that fully vaccinated people can stop wearing masks both indoors and outdoors. That's the major news of today. I also saw this one. Ellen DeGeneres says uh, that her show is going to she's going to end it. She's going to end it at the end of this season. You might remember last year, Ellen DeGeneres went through some uh, real controversy about a, kind of a toxic working relationship at her show. But she says that's not why she's leaving her decision to end the talk show. Instead, is just kind of she used the phrase instincts like I feel like it's time to be done. She did 19 years of this talk show and she sat down with Savannah Guthrie on the Today Show today to just explain she feels like it's time that if it had been because of the toxic work environment charges, she wouldn't have started the show last year. She would have not have come back. But she said, you know, it's just a different culture that we live in. And she said it's just ready to be done. That uh, She's going to wrap her 19th season in 2022. Uh, it launched in 2003. And she said most people said that they told her that they wouldn't be able to make it, that the show would never make it. And so she said great pride in 19 years. Uh, a lot of people I know 
uh, love the Ellen DeGeneres show. My kids love to watch Ellen's Game of Games. That's another Ellen show. Uh, kind of these crazy uh, games that they have people play. Uh, but anyway, big news in the entertainment industry. The rest of our time in this, uh, the, as we start the show, I want to, uh, I, I hesitated to do this, but I do want to do this. I want to play what Republican uh, Congressman, Republican, uh, Representative, uh, Republican Representative, I should say, uh, Andrew Clyde. He is a Republican representative out of Georgia. And this has been flying around uh, Twitter and stuff, but I think it's an important thing to listen to, uh, especially all that's going on culturally and politically right now uh, with uh, Liz Cheney, with uh, their feeling like there is a fracturing going on, or maybe it's at least just being acknowledged within the Republican Party of people who say, we cannot let President, uh, former President Trump have any uh, opportunity to get back into the Oval Office. And then a lot of people, especially in the House, seem to be saying, no, we, we, we are supportive of former President Trump. In fact, he's our kind of figurehead. He's the one that we want back into office. And it, a lot of it has to do with was the election stolen, was the election not stolen. Uh, but listen to this uh, by Representative Andrew Clyde out of Georgia. Listen to what he had to say. Let me be clear, there was no insurrection, and to call it an insurrection, in my opinion, is a bold-faced lie. Watching the TV footage of those who entered the Capitol and walked through Statuary Hall showed people in an orderly fashion staying between the stanchions and ropes taking videos and pictures. You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. All right, here's the deal, friends. Whether you think uh, the election was stolen or not, whether you think that president, former President Trent, uh, Trump is uh, at fault for the insurrection on January 6th or not, uh, whether you believe that he should run for office again or you do not, whether you believe that uh, that uh, that they should have gotten rid of Liz Cheney or not, or, or it doesn't matter where you stand to at all imply or say that what happened on January the 6th inside that Capitol was a, quote, normal tourist visit is absolutely crazy. And it almost implies that that people forget that so much of it is on video. People died in there. Uh, people were beaten. There was a, a things were taken. Uh Doors were broken down and, and people were chanting, hang Mike Pence. Like it was a crazy time. And so, again, there could be debates about why that happened. Uh, we all have our opinions, but you could say you could link it to former President Trump and his words or you can distance him from it. That's I think you could you could make the argument for both. But to impl not imply he said it to say that the insurrection was a normal tourist visit is one of the absolute craziest things that I've ever heard. And here's the here's the danger of it. It's a it's an attempt to rewrite history. It's it's an attempt uh, to, to rewrite history and say, no, that never happened, because here's the deal. If we let that happen on January 6th without any uh, acknowledgement that there is needs to be consequences, then it's going to happen again. It, it, it very well could happen again. And it might not be because of this side or that side, but oh, who knows? And so 
Here's what needs to happen, in my opinion. There needs to be a, a great uh, congressional investigation, a bipartisan committee and investigation looking into what happened on January 6th because it's that big a deal. It is the U.S. Capitol building. And to again imply that the insurrection looked, quote, like a normal tourist visit is absolute insanity. And these are the people that should not be in power and should not have a say. And I just needed to start there because when I saw it, it was absolutely infuriating. And I hope you feel the same way because I don't see under any circumstances, regardless of how you vote, uh, of how that can at all be okay. Well, speaking of politics, coming up next, uh, George W. Bush sat down uh, with uh, Russell Moore to talk about immigration as and some other things. And I found some stuff that George W. Bush, former President Bush, had to say about immigration, especially uh, to be very interesting. We're going to listen to some of that and discuss it next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this Thursday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. It's starting to feel like spring. It's getting there. And then we talked about uh, in the last part of the show. We discussed the fact that the CDC comes out and they're telling, saying uh, fully vaccinated people don't need to have masks inside or outside. Like it feels like we're getting back to some normalcy here, uh, regardless of where you stand on things. Feels like things are coming back. And so we hope that remains to be the case. And just glad the sun is shining and it's a good day today. Uh, again, we're uh, real excited in the five o'clock hour to be joined by Pastor Alistair Begg. Uh, Pastor Begg is uh, just a really impressive person. And so we are going to talk to him about his new book called Brave by Faith. Brave by Faith. Excited to talk to Alistair Begg. He does have a radio program heard uh, daily here called Truth for Life. You can hear Alistair Begg on Truth for Life weekdays at 7.30 a.m. and 1.30 p.m. here on AM 1160. It is a great listen uh, if you're not used to doing that. We're also going to do a giveaway for Alistair's new book. So for your chance to win a copy of Brave by Faith, visit 1160hope.com and search for the keyword brave. Again, go to 1160hope.com, search for the keyword brave, and you will be entered into a giveaway for one of Alistair's, uh, for a free copy of his new book, Brave by Faith. So we're excited to do that uh, with Alistair Begg later on today. Well, former President George W. Bush had a, a fascinating sit down with uh with russell moore uh he sat down with russell moore the other day and they had talked about all sorts of things but really a lot of it had to do with immigration here's the reason why president bush uh has a book he has a he, you might know he's been doing paintings he's taken up painting and he has a new book called out of many one portraits of america's immigrants and it's a collection of 43 portraits painted by president bush and the accompanying stories of these people these immigrants that exemplify the promise of america and our proud history as a nation of immigrants and so he joined russell moore to talk more about it uh and i want you to listen just to some of the background here uh from former president bush once you start painting them then you start telling their stories and once you start telling their stories, uh, then all of a sudden it becomes uh, very apparent that one of the themes needs to be the positive contributions people make and that uh, we should not fear uh, 
the erosion of a culture, uh, immigrants enhance our culture of freedom and freedom of religion and freedom to speak and enthusiasm toward, uh, you know, what America represents. It depends on where you start uh, your philosophy from. I, I started mine from all life is precious and we're all God's children. If that's how you view immigration, then you don't view uh, people with hostile eye. You view them with a loving eye. Yeah. And loving eye doesn't mean uh, tearing down a border wall. Loving eye means treating people with respect. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and you know, this ought to be an issue of, uh, uh, that's dear to all religious people. And so President Bush, besides doing this, is wanting to raise the uh, the specter of immigration. Immigration has been something that is uh, a divisive, hot button issue uh, within our culture. It's always been. But then you add on top of it kind of uh, the platform that President Trump ran on and, and immigration has become a huge deal. And so former President Bush, if you watch uh, so the hour long interview, which I did, he does talk about how he wants to respect the office of the presidency. And that's why he hasn't spoken up much about it. But now with this book, he is and, and former President Bush uh, talked about immigration and he said immigration should be, quote, dear to all religious people and immigrants should be viewed with a loving eye. It depends on where you start your philosophy, he said. I start mine with all lives are precious and we're all God's children. If that's how you view immigration, President Bush said, then you don't view them with a hostile eye. You view them with a loving eye. And a loving eye doesn't mean tearing down a border wall. It means treating people with respect. He says once an issue becomes politically hot, it's very difficult to paint a positive picture that rises above the noise. So he says this is his attempt at doing that. Could we get something done? He says, I think so, but it's going to have to be in bite size. Uh, in bite-sized pieces. Over the course of his tenure as president, immigrants have always looked up to President Bush and his leadership, uh, Russell Moore said, and others. And so it's this idea of of immigration. Okay, and this is a hot-button issue. Uh, but the question isn't, again, I say this, I try to stay in my lane. Uh, I know that as a talk show radio host, we're supposed to have opinions on everything. But I, when somebody asks me what I think about immigration, I literally go, I don't know enough about it. I don't know what the right answer is. And one of the things I appreciate about President Bush here, he says, just because what I'm saying, talking about love and, and seeing people in the image of God, that doesn't mean you tear down a border wall. That doesn't mean that you just let everybody in. That's not his point. He wants to ask the question, not what's the right policy for immigration. He wants to ask the question, how do we view the immigrant? How do we view the one trying to come in? How do we view uh, the asylum seeker? Uh, President Bush went on to say, we should not fear the erosion of our culture through immigration. Immigrants enhance our culture of freedom and freedom of religion and freedom to speak and enthusiasm towards what America represents, he says. Uh, and, and so here's the question. What do we do uh, with immigration, first of all? 
President Bush said he wants border enforcement with a compassionate touch. And the question for the politicians out there is, what does that look like? Border enforcement with a compassionate touch. President Bush went on to say he's opposed to open borders, but wants it to be easier for people to legally enter the country. And he'd made a run at that as president. It did not go, it did not pass. It did not. He was not able to pull this off. But what I really want to hone in on is not what is the right immigration policy, but what is the Christ followers view of immigrants, of those who are trying to get in, those who are fleeing, maybe somewhere where they're going, who the less fortunate, whatever else we want to say. What is our perspective? And, and that's where I appreciate uh, what he said. Uh, you don't view with a hostile eye, you view with a loving eye. You means treating people with respect. We've talked on this show so often about the importance of the theology of the Imago Dei, the image of God, that all people are created in the image of God. That God loves all people enough to have sent Jesus, his one and only son, to die so that they may have life. And when we talk about treating people with the that with a recognition that they've been created by God in his image, then it raises the value of every person. We have to show value then to every person, to the homeless person that we walk past, to the person whose politics we extremely disagree with, to the person who doesn't believe what we believe. And yes, to the immigrant who is trying legally or illegally trying to get into our country. And this, again, does not mean that we should just let everybody in. This is not about policy. This is instead about how do you view other people? Because the policy, the policymakers need to come up with what's best for the country. But the question is, how do we view other people? And that's what I want to challenge each of us with. What does it mean for you, whether it be homelessness, immigration, prison reform, the death penalty, poverty, uh, politics, whatever else it might be? What does it mean to you uh, that everyone else around you, including yourself, is created in the image of God and that they are to be treated and loved that way in the image of God? What difference does that make for you? That's what I took out of what President, former President Bush had to say again out of uh, uh, above my pay grade to try to figure out immigration policy, but how to view the immigrant, how to view the less fortunate. There's a biblical imperative there that says uh, the least of these and love your neighbor uh, and that we're all created in the image of God. Well, coming up next, celebrity culture in Christianity versus how did Billy Graham, Billy Graham live his life? We're going to hear from his pastor about the effect that Billy Graham had on his life versus the celebrity culture of many pastors today. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. One of the things we've been talking about, unfortunately, a lot lately is celebrity pastor culture, celebrity Christian culture. A lot of this got started. Well, one of the ways that this got shown was through a random Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. Uh, and the guy kind of started it as a joke, but it's it kind of blew up. And here was the gist behind it. There's one guy, he said, just from his own couch, he started chronicling. Uh, the the price of the sneakers that many pastors were wearing, especially kind of mega church big pastors. Uh, and what he was finding was I didn't even know these kinds of sneakers existed. 
his name is Ben Kirby, uh, but he was finding that there were many pastors speaking in sneakers that are thousand dollars. $1,200 watches that are multiple thousand dollars. And he, the Instagram feed that he started called preachers and sneakers just kind of blew up uh, and put the world of celebrity pastors under a new microscope and the celebrity pastor craze, right? It, uh, it, it began in this guy's words, at least because church attendees required a level of celebrity and entertainment from their pastor. So he's saying that as much, if not more, of the problem uh, is is with those who make pastors or make speakers or make authors or whatever into celebrities. And then the problem is also with those pastors who embrace that celebrity and kind of put themselves up on a pedestal. And we've seen so many celebrity pastors fall in the last year or two where you look at it and you go, what in the world? How did we get here? Like, like what, what, what really happened here? How do we even begin to explain this? Uh, and where, where pastors seem so detached from their congregations and from just the biblical call of what it means to be a shepherd. Is it in the end a big deal if a guy wears $1,500 sneakers? That's for you to decide. This isn't necessarily about the sneakers. This is about the celebrity culture that we have made in Christianity and specifically in evangelicalism. And uh, he stressed the celebrity culture. I think a lot of it's caused by us, the followers or the people that are attending these places, because if we weren't, then they wouldn't be celebrities. Pop star Justin Bieber recently weighed in on celebrity culture. He stressed that every human being, regardless of your social status, has the same access to God. But I want you to think about celebrity culture. Uh, social media has added to this, all sorts of stuff. But I want you to think about how backwards uh, pastoral or church or Christian celebrity culture is. And to ask yourself, how did we get there? What does it say about us? Not about them necessarily, not about the pastor with the shoes. It says something about him or her. But what's it say about us who kind of perpetuate this, who... Uh, platform who platform these people. What does it say about us and the cause of Christ? I think celebrity culture is insidious. It is uh, it is just backwards. And I think it is uh, really harming the cause of Christ in our culture. I want you to think back into the 80s and uh, the televangelist scandals that were going on. Think Jim Baker. Think Jimmy Swagger. Well, what did a lot of that have to do with? Yeah, it had to do with infidelity and some other things. But but it also had to just do with lavish lifestyles and celebrities and uh, air conditioned dog houses and all sorts of other things where these empires came crashing down. Well, we've just kind of remade them now in some of these mega churches and other places where these pastors uh, are making obscene amounts of money. But really, where it's not even about the money, where they are the celebrities. Now, now I want you to think about this in the last hundred years. If you could choose one Christian well-known person uh, who could have been a celebrity, who would you choose? I think near the top of all of our list would be Billy Graham. And so I want to read something that I think is interesting because it, it gives another side to this. Billy Graham's personal pastor shared what the church can learn from the ministry of, quote, the humble evangelist. I just think about what we just talked about. And now listen to this. 
Billy Graham's pastor and friend reflected on his years long friendship with the famed evangelist and shared the lessons and values he believes the church can glean from the life and ministry of a man he said mirrored the very heartbeat of God. Uh, Don Wilton, he recalled in an interview, he said, Mr. Graham's heartbeat and passion and reflection of the very face of God showed deeply, penetrated my own heart and life. I've never been around a man personally like that who so deeply and genuinely and consistently reflected the face of God's grace. As a pastor myself, one can only imagine the enormous depth of the blessing that God conferred on me every time I was with him every week. It talks about how they got together every Saturday for many years. And he says, most people, the closer you get to them, the more you realize that they have clay feet. But the closer I got to this man, Billy Graham, the more I realized that he was just full of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that showed throughout his life and his demeanor, everything pointed to Jesus. So to honor his friend, Wilton recently released a book, Saturdays with Billy, My Friendship with Billy Graham. Uh, but he goes on to say, it was not uncommon for me to be sitting outside having tea with Mr. Graham and he'd be staring out the window. I'd say to him, Mr. Graham, what are you looking at? And he'd say, I can just see Ruth, his wife who had passed away standing in the kitchen, preparing something nice for us. It sounds very simplistic, but he had a very tender, deep love for his wife. Uh, and he goes on to say, he goes on to talk about the humility of Billy Graham. He said the most potent and influential thing about the evangelist, the pastor emphasized, was his striking humility despite his celebrity status. Over his seven years, uh, Billy Graham preached to some 215 million people at more than 400 crusades, simulcast his rallies in more than 185 countries. Uh, if you were to paint a picture of Billy Graham, here's the picture. A nobody who thought he was somebody, that's Don Wilton talking, talking to a somebody who really thought he was a nobody. Mr. Graham was known all over the world. He was famous man who dealt with prime ministers, presidents, kings, queens, celebrities, the most famous athletes. He never elevated himself. He only elevated Jesus. He never boasted except in the cross of Christ, it says. Now, I want you to take that. And, and and put it up against what we just described about our current church culture. Friends, we need more people with that humility. Billy Graham was not perfect. I get uncomfortable when people hold up Billy Graham as perfect. Lots of flaws. But but this he got right. He wanted people to see Jesus. There was a humility to him. He could have been a much bigger celebrity than he was, but he pushed people away from himself and pointed them to Jesus, to the power of of the gospel. There was a humility to him. And now think about the original story we talked about where uh, pastors are seem to be platforming themselves. It seems to be about their brand, many of these uh, bigger pastors. And we have to ask ourselves, uh, can we get back to what we talked about with Billy Graham? Because we need humble leaders. We need people in the footsteps, not of Billy Graham, but in the footsteps of Jesus who did not, Philippians chapter two, made himself a man uh, it became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We need pastors and leaders of humility who are going to shepherd and people out there. I would say if you are in one of these churches where it's all about the pastor and it's all about his or her brand and whatever else, that's dangerous. And I'd be really careful. And I think a great picture of what it needs to look like is, again, being reminded of the life of Billy Graham. Coming up next, I'm often taught, uh, said to be the sports one on the show. I want to talk about the game that my favorite baseball team played yesterday, but really about the uh, news conference that happened afterwards. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.
Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. I've told you all before, if you've been around this show at all, not only am I a sports fan, I'm a New York sports fan. And the reason for that uh, is that's where I grew up. I grew up outside of New York City in kind of northwest New Jersey, about 45 minutes to an hour outside of New York City, directly west of New York City. And so I grew up a New York Giants fan for football, right? I grew up a diehard New York Mets fan for baseball. And then I came out here to go to college and I settled in the Midwest. But I said, you know what? Those are still my teams. We often keep our teams of our youth, right? Uh, And I'm no different. I I stayed with the Mets and the Giants and the Mets right now on a seven game winning streak, might I add, the longest winning streak in all of Major League Baseball right now, uh, sitting atop the NL East. Uh, They just had a two game series against the Baltimore Orioles at Citi Field in New York. Uh, And the Mets won both games and they won yesterday pretty easily seven to one. But the big story of yesterday's game, this is not don't worry, this is not a sports station, but I want to get to this. The big story of yesterday's game was who pitched for the Baltimore Orioles. So the starter for the Baltimore Orioles was a man by the name of Matt Harvey. And again, if you are not a big baseball fan, let me tell you, Matt Harvey was a superstar, a a phenom in 2013, 2014 for the New York Mets. Uh, He kind of took New York by storm, but then he got hurt and through a lot of kind of like personal problems, uh, the marriage, if you will, between Matt Harvey and the Mets did not end well. And Harvey's career seemed to be over, but now he's kind of learned. He's kind of reinvented himself and he is back and he's pitching. Now the Mets hit him hard yesterday, but for the most part this year, He's kind of been rejuvenated, not as the superstar that he was, but just as a solid pitcher. And the big question going into the game yesterday was, uh, how would Matt Harvey be received by the City Field fans, by the team, by all sorts of stuff? Uh, and I was hoping that they would receive him well. And sure enough, the fans, the few fans that are allowed to be at the game, uh, gave him a huge standing ovation every time when he came out to the mound, when he left the game, when he came up to bat. Huge standing ovation and and listen to how Matt Harvey describes the impact that that had on him. You know, I didn't really know what to expect and, and what they gave me, um, what the fans gave me out there was was pretty incredible. I, I hold, was holding back tears. Um, I'm not going to lie about that. It was it was pretty hard holding them back and reminded me of, uh, you know, a lot, really a lot of the good memories and, and uh, coming off the field with uh, you know, an ovation like that, um, it brought a lot back, and it was it was very special to me. Something I'll, something I'll never forget. You know, obviously the last couple of years weren't weren't the way I wanted them to go. Um, I think there was a lot of you know between the injuries and and um, I think me getting in my own way and and causing some of those problems. I think it was. Uh, you know, I feel I feel for them. I feel for the fans that maybe I let them down, and and um, you know, the last couple of years I guess have been extremely humbling, and and the last couple of years, especially here, have been extremely humbling. And I've learned from my mistakes, and um, you know, finally finally being healthy and, and trying to kind of reinvent myself and get back out there is um, hasn't been easy, but. Besides today, I think things have been going in the right direction. So I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to beat myself up about a you know a, a bad outing. But obviously, I wish it was different. Uh, 
but I'm healthy, like I said, and, and I've learned from my mistakes and, and, you know, just trying to keep putting myself into, you know, the right position to, to keep playing this game. So again, I was watching the game uh, and it was just heartwarming. And you could tell that he was going to cry on the mound because all of this kind of build up to what would happen when he pitched again, uh, he was welcomed and he was brought back. And uh, here's what's interesting. Uh, Matt Harvey speaks of the many regrets that he has because, like I said, fame came to him very quickly when he came up with the Mets. uh, And uh, he kind of became more about the fame and more about Matt Harvey than about baseball. And then he got injured. Uh, and he stopped showing up to things. And the Mets eventually had to trade him for essentially a bag of balls, right? Like they didn't trade him for very much. Uh, and now he's been humbled. And it got me thinking, like, it would have been easy for Matt Harvey to just beat himself up and go, like, I can, I've wasted my life. I've wasted my career, I should say. Or to say, you know what, I'm just bitter for the way it ended. But at some point, Matt Harvey looked in the mirror and said, I screwed up, but I, I can I still have an opportunity like there's redemption possible here. There's a, a next chapter of my life available. Let me spin this pastorally a little bit here. There are people out there listening right now uh, who feel like you've just screwed up. You feel like God could never love you. You feel like you have wasted years, decades, however long. You're just saddled with guilt. You're saddled with shame. You're saddled with regret. And every day you feel that heavy weight around you. And the real question is, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? The Bible has some really good news. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And what? Heat more guilt upon us? No, it says he's going to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, make you clean, make you clean. Other places we read, right? That the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's a gift. Jesus himself says uh, that his burden is light. His yoke is easy. That Jesus didn't come to saddle you with guilt and regret and shame. Jesus came to take that and bring about a a new birth and new life in you. If you out there are saddled by guilt, if you're just wrecked by shame because of what you did yesterday, a year ago, or 20 years ago, the answer to your guilt and the answer to your shame is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of the coming of Jesus. That Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Are you weary and heavy laden today? He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. If that's where you are at today, might you get on your knees today and cry out to your heavenly father. Say, Lord, I I, I feel like I've screwed up. I feel like I have. Uh, just kind of messed my life up. Can you do anything with this broken jar of clay? And there we find restoration. We find healing. We find forgiveness. We find the slate wiped clean. And while there still may be consequences and, and to what we've done, uh, there need not be any more regret and any more shame as we embrace the amazing grace that we have in Jesus Christ. 
So that's what I thought of as I watched the game yesterday and I saw Matt Harvey's news conference after afterwards. I was like, that's a picture of restoration. That's a picture of transformation. May we all know that deeply as we run to our Heavenly Father. Well, coming up next, I'm going to talk about two uh, political subjects that I saw, uh, one that had me confused and one that had me angry. We're going to do that next here on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, should we be required to do the national anthem before sporting events? And then we're joined by Pastor Alistair Begg, the author of a new book entitled Brave by Faith. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on a beautiful Thursday afternoon. Okay, I saw two stories, one that confused me and one that made me angry. Let's start with the, uh, you know, let's get the anger out of the way. Let's get the anger out of the way. As if you've listened to this show at all, <clears throat> you know that one of the things that bothers me most culturally, specifically about our politics, uh, isn't disagreement. It's when people have the inability to be civil. It's when people have the inability to debate and disagree with civility. Uh, we have Jim Dennison on here all the time. He wrote an entire book about the need for civility. It's called Respectfully, I Disagree. And this is a huge thing that has changed culturally. We used to be able to discuss, to debate, to have a differing of ideas, but to do it in a civil way and still be Americans at the end or take it to the church. We used to be able to disagree. Uh, and to do all sorts of those things, but still be united in Christ in the end, still be together. But we have certainly, especially on the polls, uh, either end of our political spectrum, completely lost the ability to be civil because we see each other as enemies. It's no longer I disagree with you politically. It's I, you are my enemy and I must defeat you. And I bring that up because of this story that came out today. Uh, I'm reading from NBC News. Marjorie Taylor Greene, quote, verbally assaulted uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, and says uh, Nancy Pelosi says it may require an ethics investigation. Two reporters from The Washington Post saw Greene yell at Ocasio-Cortez when they left the House chamber on Wednesday. I just want to paint the picture here uh, a little bit. Uh, they were walking out of the House chamber and uh, Marjorie Greene uh, caused a scene outside of the chamber when she accosted Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, she's had prior incidents of chasing down in public people she disagrees with, uh, but she basically screamed at her uh, and told her uh, and just accused her of being, you know, Antifa. And, you know, you don't talk about the riots and you won't debate me on the Green New Deal. And it, quite frankly, uh, felt like she was trying to make a scene. And uh, Ocasio-Cortez uh, did not kind of take the bait. But earlier in the day, Green mocked AOC for supporting police reform and then wanting them to intervene on, for the incident. And so it all felt like political theater, right? It all felt like political theater. She shouted at her, you don't care about the American people. Why do you support terrorists? And can I just be honest? Like, I get it. 
I get the social media world that we live in. I understand what we are. I understand what we are as a culture now. But this kind of performance theater to try to score political and media points is infuriating. Do we have any hope that Marjorie Green can sit alongside Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and do anything and get anywhere? Do we have any hope that uh, that President Biden and Kevin McCarthy can get anywhere, get anything done together? No, because we lack complete civility and we have absolutely uh, no ability. In fact, it's not that we don't even have the ability to be civil and, and discuss things. We don't have it at all as a desire. That's not what our politics is about anymore. And that's shameful because it's, it filters its way down. Our kids are watching these things. You know what I mean? And this is what it's like in our churches sometimes. This is what it's like on social media. Can we please try to reclaim some civility, even with the people who we vehemently disagree with? Like I, I don't know. I think Marjorie Greene's a clown, and I think a lot of these politicians are clowns. But, but can we at least have an expectation that our politicians will be civil and be able to debate and discuss? Can we have an expectation that... We'll have civility within our culture at all. I, I think we can hold that up. So that was the thing that made me angry. Now, the thing that confused me. Wisconsin lawmaker was on Fox and Friends yesterday. He's putting a bill forward requiring that anth- the anthem, the national anthem at games uh, be played across Wisconsin. So all sporting events, pro in uh, all public schools and other facilities that were built or upgraded by taxpayer funds. Under this law, they would require that the national anthem be played before all sporting events in the state. And he did this because he expressed that Americans need to, quote, come together as a nation. So I'm going to say a couple things about this, because this is why this confuses me with this whole debate about the anthem uh, and sporting events. Uh, because I quite frankly believe like we just talked about the anthem and how people react at sporting events uh, has become a political game of scoring points again. Uh, Now I love the national anthem. I have taught my kids to stand there with their hand over their heart. I've, I I take my hat off. Like I'm not anti anthem. I am very pro national anthem. I just don't understand why people care that it gets played at sporting events. Like we don't insist that they get played at concerts. We don't start musicals on Broadway or wherever else by playing the national anthem. We don't, uh, you, you know, you know, you don't go to a, the opera or a ballet performance or whatever else it might be. We don't start anything else in our culture with the national anthem. But yet there seems to be this referendum on patriotism on whether or not the national anthem is part of our sporting events. And that's why I say, I'm not against it. I'm, I, I love the national anthem at the beginning of sporting events, but I don't understand why people make such a big deal about it. What is it about sporting events Whereas we don't start anything. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you think I'm wrong. And we start all sorts of things with the national anthem. And I'm just not going to these things. But all the things I go to, you know, before COVID, I went to Hamilton. We didn't start by standing for the national anthem. And so I I just am, am, am a little bit confused by it. And, and I don't want to rule it out. I think it should be, you know, if the if the people at that stadium want to play the national anthem, go for it. If the league says do it, go for it. I just don't think it should be a political, uh, you know, kind of referendum. 
where the government is saying we're going to require the national anthem. If the uh, if take Wisconsin, if the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks wants to play the national anthem at his at his place, great, go for it. But I also know that I've been to a lot of games where they don't close the concession stands during the national anthem. They don't. People are walking around. And so, again, I love the national anthem. It's one of my favorite parts of going to games. But a bill requiring it seems to be a bit heavy handed and a bit much. And maybe you should expand your bill then, man. Make it all the concerts. How about Summerfest up in Wisconsin? How about where they do the musicals? How about everything else? Where does it end? So let's leave it in the hands of the people who are running these things. And we could go from there. So again, before I get emails and stuff, I am very pro national anthem. It's one of my favorite parts at games, but I just get uncomfortable when our lawmakers are going, we are now going to require it as some sort of referendum on patriotism uh, that I don't think it was ever intended to be. So that's my take. You could, you could disagree with me. I am good with that. We would love to have the conversation. Well, coming up next, Pastor Alistair Begg, the author of Brave by Faith, God-sized confidence in a post-Christian world. Pastor Begg is going to join us for the next 30 minutes here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. And uh, we are thrilled to be joined by the senior pastor of Parkside Church out near Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, His name is Alistair Begg. Uh, That name might sound familiar to those of you who listen to AM 1160 on a regular basis. Alistair uh, hosts Truth for Life every weekday at 7.30 a.m. and 1.30 p.m. right here on AM 1160. Uh, and he's also the author of a new book called Brave by Faith, God-Sized Confidence in a Post-Christian World. And before we welcome in Alistair, let me tell you, we're doing a special giveaway where you can receive one of his books for free. If you would like to receive Brave by Faith, go to 1160hope.com and search for the keyword brave. Again, that's 1160hope.com and search for the keyword brave. That's a lot, Alistair, but all that to say, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the show. It's a privilege to join you too. So uh, thank you very much. It's absolutely my pleasure. I'd love to talk to you about your book here, Brave by Faith. Why don't you give us an overview? Why Not only why did you write the book, but what is Brave by Faith about? Well, it's actually the story of uh, uh, Daniel and his friends who are taken away from the world that was familiar to them and taken into an alien territory where their convictions were either going to be uh, present in their lives, or they were going to be squeezed out of them. And of course, what happens is that uh, the crises that they face uh, reveal that they are men of conviction. And the the hero in the story is, of course, God himself. It's not that uh, Daniel was particularly brave, uh, but that he was brave by faith. In other words, uh, the challenge for us, or the encouragement for us, is not to become like Daniel, but to learn to trust in Daniel's God. And uh, so that's really the theme that runs throughout. Oh, absolutely. That's outstanding. Now, uh, we all know in the Daniel story, we know Babylon. And, and I would ask this question, what does, our, what does our modern world have in common with Babylon? Well, it's a world that is uh, uh, opposed to God uh, and is stuck on itself and is antagonistic towards uh, 
uh, the king. Uh, Psalm 2, why do the nations wage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? Why do they uh, respond and uh, say, let us break their bonds and uh, establish our own agenda? Uh, that's that's the thing. It's the king, two kingdoms. It's Augustine, you know, the kingdoms of our world and the kingdom of our Christ, the two cities. Uh, Babel uh, is man's endeavor to uh, uh, reach up to heaven and to do without God. And so Babylon is epitomized by that, and our world is largely epitomized by that, too. That's why Jesus said, mm. you know, you've got to be in it, but you mustn't be of it. That's right. That's right. I, I love the title of the book, Brave by Faith, because, you know, typically we, we hear live by faith or walk by faith. Could you, you already did it a little bit, but can you talk more about that title, Brave by Faith, why you called it that, and what does faith have to do with bravery? Well, uh, well, it's, if, if we were to go into the New Testament and think about Paul encouraging Timothy as a younger man in pastoral ministry, he says to him, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. In other words, he's not asking him to look inside of himself and try and be a courageous person, but he's saying to him, uh, find your strength and your confidence in God and then work out your own salvation, as it were, from there. And so if you think about the climate in which we find ourselves today, where uh, certain fundamental uh, convictions that frame biblical Christianity are under radical attack uh, in in multiple spheres of life, then uh, it's going to take a measure of bravery for people to actually be prepared to stand against the tide. And for, for many of us, it's much easier just to go with the flow but any dead fish can flow downstream. You know, it only takes a, it takes a live stream <laughs> fish to be able to fl- uh, uh, swim against the current. Mm. Uh, you say this in the book. I just love this phrase. You say, what the world most needs from the church is our gospel, not our approval. And, and so I guess I would ask it this way. Uh, what makes approval different from the elements of the gospel, like being loving? A lot of times people are like, well, we're just supposed to be loving and non-judgmental or whatever. Help us understand again when you say the world needs the church's gospel, not our approval. Yeah. Well, I mean, basically, uh it's a, it's a real challenge, isn't it? Because um, we all like to be um, included in the group. We don't want to be the standout. It's always difficult when you're at school and you experience that or uh, in, in a lab setting as a, as a Christian. And, uh, and you realize it's much easier just to go along with the group and uh, to uh, acknowledge their jokes or to uh, be prepared to adapt to uh, their convictions, uh, but that is no help to them because what they need is the gospel. And the gospel is the story of what God has done for us in Jesus to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sin, from death, and from hell. And so uh, the, the, the gospel is not about what we can do in order to uh, uh, make ourselves acceptable to God, but it is the good news of what God has done in Jesus. Now, that, of course, is uh, immediately anathema to people who have been brought up believing that uh, they can find in themselves the answer to all of their questions, and uh, they can uh, improve themselves and uh, uh, be better uh, so, so uh, citizens and uh, members of, uh, of the group. Uh, but it fails to acknowledge the fact that we're desperately flawed. And the Bible 
inevitably confronts us with that, and people don't like to hear that. They don't like to hear it uh, any more today than they did uh, in Daniel's day. Absolutely. You know, something that always sticks out when I read Daniel or read that story is just how much the other leaders were against him, like they to the point that they wanted to have him killed. Why do you think in the book of Daniel, so many of the other leaders, you know, they didn't just disregard him. They hated him to such a level that they wanted to have him killed. Why do you think that was the case? Well, it wasn't because he was doing bad things. It was because he was doing good things. It wasn't because his character was malignant. It was because his character was crystal clear. In other words, they were jealous of him. They despised uh, the very goodness that they found in him because the quality of his life it, it, it just just revealed uh, the emptiness of their own. Uh, for example, when they are completely unable to employ their spells and their stratagems to interpret the, the dreams of the king, uh, this fellow uh, from who knows where steps forward and instead of saying, don't worry, I've got it covered, he says, uh, well, I, I, I'm not sure that I can do this, but I do know that God can do this. And so he introduces God into the equation. And of course, that's exactly what follows. And again, you see, we have to understand the nature of the world in which we live in. That people don't live in a, in a neutral zone trying to decide whether they want to be uh, in the kingdom of God or not in the kingdom of God. We are by nature members of the kingdom that is opposed to God. And that's why the story of the gospel is that he comes uh, to bring us out of the kingdom of darkness into this kingdom of light. And so when, when the light shines, you know, if you're with somebody who doesn't cuss all the time, then it's amazing how it really annoys people who cuss all the time. Or if you're with somebody who doesn't tell dirty jokes all the time, that they're like, man, I hate you. Well, why? Why, why do you hate me? Well, because our, our lives in some measure expose uh, the nature of uh, uh, the, the circumstances that are there to be, to be seen. And so it's no surprise that they, that they despise him for that. Yeah, again, we're being joined by Alistair Begg. He is senior pastor of Parkside Church near Cleveland, Ohio. He's also the author of a new book called Brave by Faith, God-Sized Confidence in a Post-Christian World. We're doing a special giveaway here. You can receive Alistair Begg's new book and a chance to win a copy of it for free. Here's how you do it. Visit 1160hope.com and search for the keyword brave. Again, that's 1160hope.com. Search for the keyword brave. Also, you can hear Alistair on Truth For Life, which airs weekdays here on AM 1160 at 7.30 a.m. and 1.30 p.m. Alistair, we're thrilled that you've stayed with us. Uh, before we jump it back into your book, Brave by Faith, I did want to just ask you, kind of pastor to pastor, uh, What's the pandemic year been like for you, and how have you been encouraging your congregation during this crazy pandemic time? Uh, well, I think it's been um, a whole host of things. It's shown uh, all kinds of uh, elements of our of our lives and of the nature of what it means to uh, live together as uh, as a, a family of faith, especially when, for example, in the early months, uh, I just uh, stood and spoke to an empty auditorium and our material um, went out online. And then as we began to reemerge and come together, uh, the sense that some people had that 
uh, viewing things uh, in one way was uh, an expression of weakness or others had different views. It's, it's been a very testing time. And where I've tried to handle it is by just remaining consistent, consistent in doing what I do. It's a bit like, uh, you know, uh, mom goes in the kitchen and she makes, she makes the family meals and, uh, Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not so good. There's all kinds of things going on in people's lives, but you can pretty well guarantee that she'll be there and the meal will be on the table. I kind of look at it in that way. You know, I go in the kitchen during the week, I get the material together. It's not my material, I'm just a servant of it. And I've been both amazed and encouraged at the way in which the timeliness of the Word of God has helped to stabilize uh, our church family and um, remind us of what a wonder it is that even though our circumstances may be daunting and unusual, that we're discovering again that the promises of God may be trusted and that his word is exactly what it says, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, So again, we're talking to Alistair about his new book called Brave by Faith. And this book is uh, is the story of Daniel, uh, which is just an amazing Old Testament story. And Alistair, at the at the heart or part of the story of Daniel has a lot to do with idols and idol worship. And I wonder uh, what are the idols that you think we're being asked to worship today, and what are the consequences in our lives when we when we do worship those idols, and also what are the consequences when we don't worship the idols of our culture? Well, you know, the fundamental problem for us uh, as human beings is idolatry. I mean, if you think about it, the, the, the beginning of the Ten Commandments addresses this, you shall have no other gods before me, that the propensity of our hearts is to uh, choose substitute gods, uh, especially if we can have gods that will do our bidding uh, rather than our uh, bowing down before the true and living God. And so uh, from the very uh, beginning of time and from the fall of man, uh, we find that uh, uh, the people uh, who are uh, trying to make their way in the journey of life are tempted to substitute uh, all that is true of God for things that are uh, lesser gods. Now, what are they today? Well, there's, there's so many of them, but one of them is just the worship of ourselves. I mean, one of the, one of the, uh, clearest expressions of idolatry is just the fact that uh, we're stuck on ourselves. We place ourselves where God deserves to be uh, uh, on a throne. Uh, this is my life. This is my agenda. No one shall tell me what to do. And uh, that that now runs to the very essence of uh, our sexuality. Uh, the fact that I am uh, physically uh, put together by the plan and purpose of God in such a way doesn't uh, call in question my ability to change that dramatically, which is an expression of the, uh, the idolatry of self. Uh, we can add to that uh, money, we can add to it sex, we can add to it all kinds of things. But uh, the idea that somehow or another idolatry has to do with uh, shrines and idols um, fails to acknowledge that the real idolatry is the idolatry of the human heart. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I appreciate about your book, again, we're talking about the new book, Brave by Faith, is your encouragement to Christ followers to kind of draw lines that they won't cross, right? Like Daniel did in refusing to violate God's law around the food. 
Uh, how do we know which lines to draw and maybe how do we discern that uh, where, where we are to like hold fast and where maybe we can fudge things a little bit? How do you help people understand about where to draw those lines? Well, you know, the, the, the Bible helps us with that. You know, for example, again, we were talking about Titus there, you know, that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and to all kinds of passions. Um, so the, the, the Bible is, is, is principally very, very clear uh, that we are to draw lines in the matter of, let's take uh, uh, the question of human sexuality. The lines uh, are, are not uh, uh, somehow or another uh, to be self-determined, uh, that uh, God has established man and woman, has created family life, has determined what marriage is and therefore what marriage is not. And so uh, there, are, there are clearly uh, delineated lines. Now, even within that framework, though, each of us has to determine you know, what that actually means in our everyday existence. And so, for example, in the great pressure at the moment in the world of education, which has uh, basically um, capitulated on the idea of any kind of objective truth, which has uh, become invaded by a sort of relativism that extends even to the question of who and what we are, uh, school teachers who work in that system or university professors are going to have to decide uh, whether they're prepared to take a stand. Now, uh, so uh, you're a Christian and you are teaching in a Christian school and you're a chaplain and the LGBTQT people come in and say, we're going to have to help you people understand what it means to be uh, you know, kind, what it means to be fair. And when you hear what that actually means, it, it means something very, very different from that. Now, what are you going to do? You can either roll over or you can take a stand. And if you take a stand, you may lose your job. And part of the challenge is uh, some of us are going to have to be prepared to lose our jobs. And there might be pastors who are going to lose their jobs uh, because of our preparedness to say what the Bible says. If hate speech were to include the straightforward teaching of the Bible, then uh, each one of us would pretty quickly find ourselves either having to change our sermon material or being prepared to face the impact of the, the state and the law coming, coming against us. Uh, we don't look to that. We hope that that will not be the case. But it would be naive to think that if things continue on the trajectory in which they're on now, that some of us will not actually have to face that eventuality. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, Alistair, before we let you go, uh, we, I love to ask pastors this question. Uh, we're pandemic. We live in a, in a, in a politically divided time. Uh, it's a difficult time. And there's a lot of people out there who just don't have hope right now. They're struggling to have any hope in their lives because of what's happened personally or what they see going around them. Could you take a minute or two and just kind of speak a word of hope to people out there who may be struggling right now? Well, sure. I mean, part of the challenge is distinguishing between hope and the idea of, well, I hope it doesn't rain, or I hope the stock market doesn't go down. And what the Bible talks about in relationship to hope, which is uh, the certainty of that which has not yet been experienced. 
so that it's not it's not in question that when Peter says we have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not it's not as if we don't have hope. It's about living in the assurance of that hope. It's actually, I mean, in many ways, the story of Daniel is uh, uh, God is good and he can be trusted. And the part of the part of the challenge for us is facing the question, do I really believe that God is good? And if he is good, and he will give me that which is good, and he'll decide what is good, then maybe I can take my hands off the steering wheel for a little while and trust him to get me safely to my destination. Now, that's where the community of faith comes in, the encouragement of friends, the reading of the Bible, the trusting the promises of God. And so what is so easily um, uh, before us is the temptation to quit praying until we feel like praying or quit reading our Bibles until we feel like we should or quit telling others about Jesus until, you know, things come around, uh, which, of course, is the very reverse of what we need to be doing. And we don't do it because we're so supremely confident. We're actually quite timid. But God helping us, we can be brave by faith. And that bravery can extend, continuing to convince ourselves of what is true concerning God. If he gave up his own son, how will he not with him freely give us all things? That there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, neither nakedness or peril or sorrow or sword, whatever it might be. No, because in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not we may be more than conquerors, but we are more than conquerors. And so sometimes what we have to do is quit taking our own spiritual pulse to see if we're still alive and get our shoes on and get out and uh, get into the get into the world and say, God, I'm a timid person, but you can help me to be brave by faith. Oh, such a good word. Thank you so much for that. Again, that's Alistair Begg, senior pastor of Parkside Church near Cleveland, Ohio, author of multiple books. Uh, you can hear Alistair every weekday, 7.30 a.m. and 1.30 p.m., on Truth For Life, right here on AM 1160. Again, that's Truth For Life, 7.30 a.m. and 1.30 p.m. every weekday here on AM 1160. And we've been talking about his new book, Brave by Faith. You can order your copy of Brave by Faith at thegoodbook.com. Again, that's thegoodbook.com. And enter to win a copy of Brave by Faith at 1160hope.com keyword brave. And one more website for you. You can learn more about Truth For Life at truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org. Alistair, this has been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much. It's my privilege. Absolutely. Our pleasure. And you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some... Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on this Thursday afternoon. So one of the things we've been trying to do uh, throughout, especially the pandemic, is take some time just to share some good news, right? It's not hot takes. It's not, here's my opinion on this. It's just, hey, let's have a smile on our face. Here's some good news. And uh, a great place for that, this is where I took the following stories, is a website called goodnewsnetwork.org. If you just need uh, like a kind of a pick-me-up, 
let me encourage you to go to goodnewsnetwork.org, especially the stories that are labeled inspiring. Uh, and, and I'm going to read some. I'm just going to tell you these stories, and hopefully they put a smile on your face. That's how I want to end the show today. Here's the first one. Once a janitor at the school, now she's their beloved teacher after continuous study to earn degree. What's the difference between having the dream and living the dream? Hard work and perseverance. Wanda Smith always wanted to be a school teacher, but sometimes meeting life's demanding realities can mean a dream deferred. A mother of three, Smith also cared for her mom, uh, squarely shouldering her family responsibilities. She took jobs as bus monitor and custodian at Brenham Independent School District in Texas. The hours were grueling, but rather than let her dream die at age 37, with the support and encouragement of her husband, she added night classes to her schedule. Listen to this. Nine years later, she finally graduated with a bachelor's degree at Sam Houston State University. She was certified teacher at last. Her story comes full circle when she was then hired as a first grade teacher back at Brenham Elementary School. Uh, so I just love this story because this woman, nine years like she had every reason to go, ah, that'll never happen. There's no way that I could uh, I could get this done. But nine years later, there she realized her dream. Second story from the Good News Network. Folks in New Jersey, ah, my home state. Folks in New Jersey are caring for more than 800 baby turtles rescued from storm drains. You've got to see these pictures, these pictures of these baby turtles. Hundreds of diamond terrapin hatchlings have been rescued from underground storm drains along the Jersey Shore. Small terrapins can slip into drains when attempting to cross the street, and these ones were found surviving off their yolk sacs. Volunteers successfully rescued a total of 826 baby turtles using a uh, specially crafted scooper made from a telescopic aquarium net attached to a bamboo pole. Now, staff at Stockton University in Galloway, New Jersey, are caring for and rehabilitating them under their Head Start program. Once the creatures are ready, in about a year, they'll be placed back in the wild where they can thrive. I wanted to do this one simply for the picture, because it is this picture of these baby turtles that are uh, just beautiful. And so a great thing there. Third one. This feels like a Disney movie waiting to happen. Homeless Nigerian boy becomes chess champion at 10 years old after immigrating to the U.S. Uh, I'm going to attempt this name. Uh, Tanatalua Adawumi, more commonly known by his nickname Tani, may be just 10 years old, but he's already become an official chess national master with an impressive rating, which I'm not sure the rating means, of 2,223. The 28th youngest person to ever achieve such a title in a state's uh, in the States, Tanny has only was only introduced to the game of chess a few years ago while living with his family in a homeless shelter. In 2017, Tanny, his parents and brother became refugees after fleeing Nigeria to escape violent attacks on Christian families like theirs. They began residing in a shelter in Manhattan. With the help of a local pastor, Tanny started attending a local elementary school. It was there that one of his teachers, Russell uh, Makovsky, taught his class how to play chess, and Tanny was immediately drawn to the game. As it so happened, the teacher also taught a chess club at the school. 
When Tanny could not afford to pay the program fees, Makovsky waived the cost and welcomed the youngster into the club. When he completed his competed in his first chess tournament, he got the lowest score of any student. But just one year later, Tanny took home the state championship trophy after beating 73 of nation's best players in grades kindergarten through third grade. Tanny is a prodigy for sure. He is the first competitor ever to win a state championship on his first try. Rated 1,587 and closing, which is roughly half as high as the world's best player. For a while, the 10-year-old was spending every night on the floor of his homeless shelter practicing and dreaming of becoming the world's youngest grandmaster. Thankfully, a GoFundMe page was set up by his teacher and it raised over $250,000, which helped Tandy and his family out of the shelter and into their home in Connecticut. We'll be sure to let you know they said his next move. Get it? Ba-bum-bum. What a cool story coming as refugees from Nigeria in a homeless shelter. A pastor helps them out. A teacher helps them out, teaches them chess, and he becomes uh, a chess master. One of the best there is. That is uh, inspiration right there. All right. Last one. You might have seen this one on the news. Unaware she was pregnant. Lucky lady is on the same flight as neonatal crew when she gives birth prematurely. Some planes land late. Others make it to the gate on time. But a recent flight from Salt Lake City to Honolulu is giving a whole new meaning to the term early arrival. When the plane took off, Lavi Munga was heading for a family vacation. But unbeknownst to even herself, that family was about to get one bouncing baby boy bigger. The soon-to-be mom had no idea that she was already 29 weeks pregnant. That's unbelievable. I just didn't know I was pregnant, she said. And then the baby just came out of nowhere. Halfway through the fateful trip, the crew had to make an announcement seeking out medical personnel to help with an emergency. Serendipitously, serendipitously, the passenger manifest, including not only Hawaii Pacific Health physician, Dr. Dale Glenn, but a trio of needle natal nurses who all work at Missouri North Kansas City Hospital. Without proper neonatal equipment, Dr. Glenn and the nurses had to come up with a creative solution to keep baby Raymond stable for the remainder of the three-hour flight. Thanks to a mixture of wilderness training and ingenuity involving shoelaces, microwaved warming bottles, and an Apple Watch heart monitor, the newborn made it to Hawaii in good form. I don't know how a patient gets so lucky as to have three neonatal intensive care nurses on board the same flight when she's in emergency labor, but that was the situation we were in, Dr. Glenn said. The great thing about this was the teamwork. Everybody jumped in. There's pictures. There's all sorts of things. Since the birth was unexpected in lieu of a baby shower, Munga's sisters have set up a GoFundMe campaign to help with the expenses of their nephew's unticketed entrance into the world. So much unbelievable part of that story is that she had no idea 29 weeks that she was pregnant. And then she gives birth on an airplane with a neonatal crew. That's just mind boggling. And the baby's doing well Uh I don't know. You got to Google this story. It was all over the news last week or a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but man, just such a crazy story. So I wanted to end you with some good news. Obviously, we did some hard subjects today. We did some uh, hopefully inspiring subjects, but we just wanted to end you with some good news because you know what? Not everything's bad out there. Sometimes it can feel this way, but there are many people in humanity who are doing good things. Uh, and we just want to highlight them every now and then. Well, we're really glad that you joined us today. It's a beautiful day. Hope you, hopefully you enjoy some time outside or already did. Uh, and the weekend is coming. But join us tomorrow again from 4 until 6. My name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.